All right. John 19. Somewhere toward the end. Uh, I'm going to start with a little bit of a, just an overview, a little bit of backstory, because it's been a long time since chapter 1. John is the story of Jesus, God who came down to save the world. This book was written, we are told, by a disciple whom Jesus loved, and it's traditionally attributed to John. John is the fourth in the last gospel. It's the account of Jesus' life and ministry in the New Testament. John focuses on the deity of Christ more so than the other three synoptic gospels. Uh, We see Jesus in this book as the Word of God, the Son of God, and God himself. Jesus is a great miracle worker, an omniscient teacher, a compassionate provider, and a faithful friend. John may be the final gospel, but this narrative begins way before the other gospels. It starts at creation. You know, while Mark begins with Jesus in adult ministry, Matthew and Luke begin with the physical birth. John goes all the way back to the very beginning of all creation. And in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus presents himself as God incarnate throughout the the entire Gospel of John often using the phrase, I am. Um, just like in the book of Exodus, the great I am. John reveals several I am's statements throughout the book. I am the bread of life. I am from God and he sent me. I am the light of the world. I am in John eight fifty eight. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the son of God. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. It's interesting why John's doing this, because he's constructing a compelling argument on belief. He's hammering home. He wants people to believe. So he's using everything in his arsenal, in his lifetime, to convey that message. Uh, He makes the argument for Jesus as the exclusive Savior and the only way to know God, John 1.18, John 14.6. Jesus is greater than the Old Testament heroes of Moses and Abraham, John 117 and 858. Jesus Christ is indeed God in the flesh. And John is challenging the reader to believe that. Uh, the dates on the writings of this book, um, the traditional view says anywhere from 90 to 100 years afterward, at least 85 more recent scholars are coming up with like 50, 60, 70. Just know it's some time afterwards, at least six to eight decades afterward. The theme verse is in John 20, 30 to 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but have been written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ the Son of, is the Son of God, that believing you may have life in his name. Again, believe, believe, believe. Uh, In addition to this gospel, John wrote three letters in the New Testament and Revelation. Uh, He was a leader in the early church and had a large influence on the early church. All right, tonight we are in chapter 19, verses 31 to 42. Last week, Mike finished up verse 30 and... John showed us there, 
Jesus from the cross declaring, it is finished, to Telestai. The fact that Satan's dominance over man's life was done. John said, greater is in you than he that is in the world in 1 John 4.4. 4. Jesus said, the ruler of this world is judged in John 16.11. That's why we can now believe in him and find deliverance and hope. The Old Testament covenant is finished at the cross. When Jesus says it's finished, that's closing that. Jesus had come to be the sacrificial lamb. Jesus' earthly ministry was done, and his suffering was just about over. He was going to go be with the Father, but most importantly, our salvation, our hope was put into place. If you needed to know how to get to heaven, it is finished. When he said that, that was it right there. That's what the Lord did. He gave it all, just like the song just said. Jesus paid it all. It's interesting when you think about that one word, to telestai, it is finished. It's interesting how one word can, can change everything. You know, or, or a simple phrase, like not guilty in a court of law. That, that changes everything. Fair on the playing field of any game changes everything. When a woman says yes to a man in a marriage proposal, that changes everything. Goodbye can change everything. Yet, there has not been a single word that has impacted history than what Jesus said. It is finished. We have a path to be restored with the Father. At some point before he died, before the veil was torn in two, when he cried out, it is finished, an awesome spiritual transaction took place. God the Father laid upon God the Son the guilt and wrath of all our sin deserved, and he bore it perfectly, totally satisfying God's wrath for us. Spurgeon said it was a conqueror's cry. It was uttered with a loud voice. There was, there was nothing of anguish about it. There is no wailing in it. It is a cry of one who has completed um, a tremendous labor, a great task. Uh, another commentator put it this way, Jesus died with the cry of victory on his lips, or a victor on his lips. Not the moan of the defeated, nor the sign of a, of a patient resignation. It was the triumph recognition that he has now fully accomplished the work that he came to do. The verb, teleo, to finish, was first used in the first and second centuries, and the sense that it, 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 it's really trying to say there is that it's fulfilling or paying a debt. And it often appeared in receipts. You know, when people were doing money exchanges, that word would be there. So Jesus' statement in his finish to Telestai can, you know, properly be understood as paid in full. It was, all, it was all finished. It was accomplished. The types, the promises, the prophecies were, were finished. The sacrifices, the ceremonies of the priesthood in the Old Testament were finished. His perfect obedience was finished. 
the satisfaction of God's justice was finished. The power of Satan, sin, and death were done. So tonight we'll pick up where we left off on the account that John is led by the Holy Spirit as he's writing this, and he continues to focus on two things, that Jesus is God and that believing in him you might have life. Uh, We have two sections to look at from 31 to 37, the fulfillment of prophecy, and then the last five verses, uh, we focus on Joseph and Nicodemus, the two secret saints that come forward, and they come forward, come out of the darkness into the light. They leave the night shift, basically, and they come to the daytime, because most of the time we find them under cover of darkness. (laughs) All right, verse 31. Therefore, because it was a preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other two who was crucified with him. And the other, I'm sorry, not the other two, that would be bad. (laughs) But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. You think John's passionate about his point of view right there? Because I've seen it. I was there. Hello. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him who they pierce. So John is continuing his theme. John was at the cross. He watched it all unfold. And looking back, what could have been very well six, seven, eight, nine decades later, John continues to drive home the point that God's plan worked out just fine. And now, even what happened to Jesus after he died was a fulfillment of the scriptures Because the Lord hasn't lost control, not even though his son has given his life. They were still being accomplished. He starts 31 by saying it was the preparation day. The preparation day was the day when the Passover lamb was killed and prepared for the Passover feast. The religious leaders who had come at dawn earlier in the morning, remember, to pressure Pilate, into killing Jesus, the guys who wouldn't go into the Praetorium Hall because they didn't want to be defiled so that they could eat at the Passover meal, (laughs) now come again at 3 in the afternoon on that day to say to Pilate, "Um, can you hasten the deaths of those on the cross and take them down? Because this is a holy day, and we have to eat our Passover before 6, and we can't be defiled (laughs) when the new day would begin. I mean, talk about religiosity, and hypocrisy, (laughs) you know? Excuse me, we can't eat until those guys are down. Can you just take care of that for us, please? I mean, you know, to fulfill a religious duty, you know? They kill an innocent man. They railroad a spineless man, Pilate. And they come to ask for consideration for their religious devotion. They can't have bodies hanging on the cross. They couldn't have Passover. It's just unbelievable to me when you read this and study this, how outwardly they pretend to be something that they're not. 
And they're just, just how hypocritical this all is. But through it, God would use it to affirm again, his son was the one that you should trust and his word can be depended upon. You know, I think back, um, you know, putting a personal application on it. When I was a young man, I grew up a Catholic. And as a Catholic, I could remember the dichotomy of doing whatever the heck I wanted through the week, you know, uh, living basically like hell. And on Saturday at 4.30, I could show up, jump into the little box, talk to the priest for a few minutes, then afterward, jump out and recite a few prayers in a vain, repetitious manner, and suddenly all was well with the world. <laughs> Again, religion and religious piety does not create real change. Only a relationship with Christ can do that. It wasn't until I was born again that all those desires and those uh, behaviors and those way of life were removed because Christ came in. Uh, and we'll see that you know a little later with Joe and Nick coming up. So 31 again tells us Pilate was asked to break the legs of those who would be taken away. The crucifixion was ugly. It was a slow death. In fact, the average person who was crucified took about four days to die. And it was awful. It was just brutal. You either died of blood loss if you were beaten severely or asphyxiation, the inability to breathe, like just what happened right there. Uh, because the weight of your body on the wrist where the nails were placed through and the bone that held it there in place through the feet and eventually they, what they would do is they would put this little fulcrum underneath the feet, which is essentially a, a, footrest, or a footrest or a step, but... It was really only there to extend the agony of the individual because that footrest would allow that person to push up on it so he can actually get air into his lungs to continue the agony. Uh, because as your diaphragm wearied and you became unable to exhale, you had to pull up your arms and push up on your feet just to be able to breathe air out. So it was just, I mean, it was awful. Uh, however, if you didn't have the ability to push up, if your legs were broken, you would die in minutes, not days. You literally had no ability then to exhale, so death followed very quickly. You've basically you've suffocated. Uh, Pilate obliged these wicked men, and he gave the order. The Roman practice would have left them there for three days, and they usually didn't take the bodies down. And according to history, the dogs would come scavenger birds it was a brutal system but this wasn't god's plan for his son and for his body it's been said that this kind of beating and the crucifixion of jesus is a valid example and a just reason for organizations like the aclzu to exist to protect the unjust treatment of government to its citizens <laughs> thank you pete you got it <laughs> So the soldiers went, and we are told they broke the legs of the two men that were crucified with Jesus. History tells us they usually hit you in the knee with a mallet or a hammer. So can you imagine that sound of a hammer hitting bone till it breaks? I fractured my ankle in high school, and I remember that sound. 
It's kind of like the sound of a tree limb being ripped from a tree. That crack. And then just to do that with a hammer to another human being, you know, who's still alive, just to watch him die, that's just, it's just brutal. I mean, these, these guys who did it, they were human. I, I have to imagine some of them had compassion. They had to have hated it. I mean, because when they came to Jesus, they looked at him, they didn't even bother him. They saw he was already dead, and it, and it was a surprise to them. In fact, in uh, Mark 15, um, it tells us that Pilate, when he got the request from Joseph for the body, he said in no certain terms, he can't be dead yet. You know, it usually takes longer than that. And the centurion confirmed, he said, oh, no, he is. You know, and then, of course, he was sent out to find out how long he was dead. So Pilate was surprised that Jesus had died in what were just hours or minutes or, you know, however long it took. I I wasn't there. <laughs> so instead of breaking his legs, one of the soldiers lanced or pierced his side. And we are told that water and blood flowed out together, which would tell you from a medical standpoint that his heart had failed. And that water mixed with blood was the constriction of the pericardium. Pericardium, according to uh, the Internet, is the membrane enclosing the heart consisting of an outer fibrous layer and inner double layer serous membrane. So all that liquid got trapped and it burst. So that's what was flowing out. So it was heart failure and shock um, that would force that to happen. Uh, this was taken as absolute confirmation that Jesus was dead because those fluids shouldn't be there. The gash in his side from a point of his spear flowed with a substance that looked like blood and, and water. Uh, some commentators regard this as like an on-the-spot autopsy of Jesus, revealing that the actual cause of death was a ruptured or burst heart. Uh, the thinking in, in that such case is the sac surrounding the heart, normally filled with the watery substance fills with blood. That sack is open, its contents are allowed to flow outside the body, and it would look like an issue of blood and water because the two substances do not mix like oil and water. Normally it was a trickle, but perhaps there was a greater work happening there, so there was more. John Corson comments, medical experts tells us the outpouring of the blood and water indicates that Jesus died literally of a ruptured or broken heart. Blood and water also happened to be the fluids present at birth. As a bride was birthed from the side of the first Adam, so the church was birthed, birthed through the blood and water from the side of the last Adam. That's pretty heavy. So Jesus literally died of a broken heart. Augustus, top lady, or top lady, I really don't know how to say his last name, used this image in his great hymn, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt, from its guilt and power. John, who was in his 90s, remembers it like it was yesterday. It was the Lord that he loved and he's the only apostle left alive by the time he's writing this 
and he remembers it very clearly, and he writes it out. He's, he's telling the reader, look, I was there, and this is the truth. He quickly returns from his personal testimony again, and said, this is what happened so that the scriptures might be fulfilled in verse 36. John, later in his life, has connected all the dots. He's thought it through. He's, he's been through the scriptures. He recognized that God's hand was even upon the body of his son, that they couldn't break his legs because they couldn't break the legs of the Passover lamb. That the prophecies of the Messiah that would come uh, be that his legs wouldn't be broken. And there's really no way not to have your leg broken if they wanted to hurry along your death. And yet Jesus was no longer there. His body, uh, he had left his body. But it was the fulfillment of the declaration of the Passover lamb. There's a verse in Psalm 34, verse 20, which is that John quotes. He says, he guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Psalm 22 and Exodus 12:46 is where you read about the first Passover and about having it to be eaten and not carry any of the flesh outside and don't break any of its bones. It's, it's that parallel picture of the Passover lamb that, that, that's being displayed. And in Numbers 9:12, you'll read it again. Don't break any of its bones, the Passover lamb. It's the ordinance of the Passover. And Jesus, if his legs were broken, wouldn't have been our Passover. It would have uh, broken the entire picture that God had painted over the years. So if Jesus were still alive and all these, all of these verses would have been negated, God's declaration of his son would have been undependable and the Bible wouldn't have been trustworthy. And John went, I'm sure he's like tripping out, he's on Patmos most likely and Man, it's amazing how God controls all these things. You know, they didn't break his legs. Everything happened according to what the scriptures said. You know, and he's he's shouting it basically. And then he adds in verse thirty-seven that there is a scripture in out of Zechariah twelve ten, and it says, "They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as they grieve his firstborn. They will look, then they will look upon." Me whom they pierce. And it's a very specific language. It's the exact same language that you find here and in other Gospels about piercing his side with a lance. So John is, you know, connecting all the dots. Now, we are told when the Lord returns uh, that uh, those will be able to see his scar. They will look upon him who they pierce. John is also the man who wrote Revelation. That's at the back of your Bible. And the visions that God gave him in Revelation 5, he was taken to heaven after the church age. And he watched the scroll being handed forth by the Father, the title deed to the earth. And John said, I saw everyone weeping. No one was worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. And then he saw Jesus and he said, I saw, he saw him as a lamb, though it had been slain. And he took the scroll and said, he is worthy. And the people bowed to him. In heaven, John saw the scars on the body of Jesus. Those scars on the body of Jesus will be the only man-made things we will see in heaven. Nothing else. They will look upon him when he returns, whom they pierce. John is looking back, and it's making perfect sense now. The dots are being connected. Everything that he had experienced, he realized God saw beforehand. 
and it's like clicking for him. He must be tripping out in the most major way. God speaks, and we see him do it, and we depend upon him. John says in verse 35, I know that this is the truth. I want you to believe in him. I was there. This is my testimony. I tell you what I saw, and I understand now. And for 879 verses in this book, John's whole interest is your faith in Christ. He uses the word believe in one form or another a hundred different times. So, every eight or nine verses, there's that word, believe, 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 believe. He's hammering it home. And now, with Jesus being taken off the cross, he's still hammering it home. He's so moved years later to think that he was there, and now he understands the full plans of God as he saw it unfolded and how God was in charge of everything. And John said, look, I'm just telling you everything I saw that you might believe in him. That's his desire. If you look at the prophecies given and fulfilled in Jesus simply to prove that he is the fulfillment of those prophecies, you're missing a little bit. In this case, John takes four or five verses to make it clear that just as was prophesied, not a bone of Jesus was broken. Why is this so important? Well, where is blood continually produced in the body? In the bones. It's produced in the bone. Therefore, God mandated not one of his bones would be broken. So, picture that. Not one of his bones being broken. Ensuring that our Savior, our Lord and Savior, ensuring a perpetual and inexhaustible supply of blood. That's why Paul can later say, where sin abounds, grace abounds yet more in Romans 5. Truly the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse you and me from every sin we've ever committed or will commit because not a bone of Christ, the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, was broken. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, John then focuses upon the two folks, Joe and Nick, as I've come to know them, <laughs> did believe and uh, come out to say so after the cross. That was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. So in verse 38 we read, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came back, took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen, with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he, he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. So there lay Jesus. Because of the Jews' preparation day, the tomb was, for the tomb was nearby. So this is John's last view, basically, of the graveyard from his writing, his point of view from the other Gospels. And it focuses on these two members of the Sanhedrin, of all the people that would come to know and now declare their faith, these two very well-known Jewish Supreme Court guys who had been instrumental 
at least the court had been, in securing the death of Jesus and pushing for his crucifixion. They're unique. They're a unique couple of guys because they're contrary to what the scriptures usually teach. That is, that the common people listen to Jesus gladly. And that, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, there aren't many wise according to the flesh or many might or many mighty or, or noble that are called. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, first Corinthians one twenty six. But like Paul, these guys were both prominent, wise, they were powerful in their place and station in life. Like Paul, they were highly educated. Uh, they were considered erudite scholars. They could speak clearly. They were passionate about what they did. And these two guys had been living in the shadows of faith for God knows how long, but have come forward as a result of Jesus' death. They make themselves known and they make their commitment to Jesus public. They take and they take a great risk in their own lives in identifying with him at this time. You know, when I read this, I was very encouraged by it because Joseph and Nicodemus here in this passage, they're, they're well-educated members of the cultural ruling elite, and they came to faith in Jesus. You know, when you try to share with people who come from a highly educated background, you know, they're more thinkers than they are responders. They always want to argue with you, and they think they know everything, right? And you say to yourself after you walk away going, how are they ever going to get saved, you know? How are they going to just simply believe? They, they, just, they just think they're so smart. But Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were so smart too. So our encouragement is don't write people off. Preach. These guys came to faith. Billy Graham years ago taught a class about knowing your audience. And he was sharing with the pastors there um, about what his perception was of the people who gathered at all these stadiums. And he said, the thing I never forget is that every life is empty without Jesus. It doesn't really matter what people look like or how they're dressed, that their lives are are empty until they meet the Lord and that there are a lot of lonely people here that are surrounded by their friends, but they're extremely lonely. Billy Graham goes on to say, the Lord has shown me over the years that people come with a burden of guilt. They almost always have a universal fear of dying. And he said, I really expect to see God work in their lives when I come to them. He had an attitude that God was going to move. He knew that no matter who they were, God is going to move. And that's the picture that we have to take. No matter who you're talking to, simple, common, great, you reach out to them. God does the work. We don't do it. Spurgeon put it this way when he was sharing with a pastor who was frustrated that there weren't many people getting saved in his church. And he said to the pastor, uh, Spurgeon says to this guy, well, do you really expect salvations every time you preach? And the pastor says, well, well, of course not. You know, thinking he was being smart. And Spurgeon said, well, that's your problem. You should because God wants to work 
God desires for people to come. These two guys, I don't think anybody would ever written a line underneath them. These are the next guys who are going to get saved. No, they were, they, were, they were way up high in the Sanhedrin. These guys were far removed from faith as any people you know, that you may know in the culture. In our, if you apply it to your life, just, just think of people who are well-to-do and who are political leaders and, and movers and shakers and whatever you want to call them. They were everything the world says from a religious standpoint, from a power standpoint, from a wealth standpoint, were men of renown. In fact, we learned that Joseph of Arimathea uh, from the Bible is that he is a council member, one of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Sanhedrin is one of the supreme ruling court of the Jews who made all the rules in regards to religious practices and even social, uh, societal practices. Mark 15.43 says that he was an honorable counselor and that he was a distinguished member who was held in high esteem by others, that his wisdom was sought by many folks, that they looked up to him, and his word carried a lot of weight. Matthew 27.57 says he was a rich man, that he lived 20 or miles northwest of Jerusalem in a place called Ramah, uh, where Samuel uh, was born. If you, Samuel 1.1 is there. Luke 23.51 adds that he was a good man, that he was a just man. When Joseph comes up in the Bible, it speaks of his inward quality of goodness and an outward quality of justice. Now we are told that Joseph and Nicodemus had, well, from what I can put together, been missing a lot of meetings. Uh, in fact, in Mark 14, we are told that the council, when it met together, decided unanimously to put Jesus to death. Well, um, to do, and in Mark, in Mark 15, one, the whole council came to get this done. So you have to assume these guys weren't there because they weren't signing off on it for his death. On the one hand, um, believing on him, and they found themselves not there because in 2351 of Luke, it said he had not consented to the death. So because it was unanimous, he couldn't have been there because he wouldn't have consented. So also, you know, earlier on in John chapter 7, Nicodemus also questioned the court about, about Jesus. So, you know, earlier on, Nicodemus kind of put himself out there. But when you put these verses together that Joseph didn't consent, he, he didn't vote, he wasn't there. So let me read 2351 for you. It says, He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. So Joseph had been, or was for a time, a believer in the scriptures who considered Jesus to be the one who was coming who was able to put the prophecies together, he listened to God's word. and was pretty sure that this was the Lord that was to come. He was pretty sure, but not enough to do anything about it quite yet. He was still grinding in his head. He was a secret disciple. John writes here in verse 38 uh, that he was a secret disciple. He, he keeps the faith he, and he, his hope to himself. I mean... You don't really know how long he believed. I mean, Jesus was out there for, what, three, three and a half years by now? 
I, I, I know he wasn't the only one who believed in him. In fact, John would write in chapter 12, 42, and 43, among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. I'm sure these guys ate pretty well, and they probably didn't want to lose that. You know, They probably didn't want to lose the, the nice clothes, the nice house, you know, Maserati. <laughs> well, I guess it would be a Maserati chariot. <laughs> so he, you know, he's an interesting guy. He believes in, he believes the Bible. He lived an honorable life. He was a man who wanted to have faith, and he concluded that Jesus was God. He's, he set amongst a bunch of wicked men who would ultimately push to have Jesus murdered. Men that were filled with themselves were fake religious kind of people. And here's a man who had a hunger for the Lord, but he feared man. So he didn't say anything. But he kept the faith secretly. One can only wonder what might have happened because Joseph had such an impact on people. If at one of these meetings, one of these two guys stood up and said, You know what? I believe in Jesus. You know, maybe two, three, eight, ten other guys would have stood up and said, yeah, you know what, me too. They were just looking for somebody to follow. Fear of man and the thoughts of men and what man can do can negate your discipleship. We're not to fear man. We are only to fear God. And both Joseph and Nicodemus had come Had they come earlier, they would have had great privilege. They could have sat at the feet of Christ. They could have watched his miracles. They could have listened to his words and asked his questions. And being men who studied much, just probably just gleaned and and learned from Jesus directly. There would have been great proof and fruit in their lives. But they didn't. They stayed in the shadows. They stayed in the darkness. But finally, they do come. And so, rather than focusing on the fear that kept him from coming, I'd rather focus on this, and I think that's why John put it here, and that's that they did come, right? John said, I've just written this so you might believe. Just like these two guys who ultimately, when all was said and done, they stepped up and they believed, they had faith. Born again faith that moved them into action, their hearts now open, open to service, out of the shadow, into his light. And to the common reader of the day, a normal citizen, seeing their conversion, well, the conversion of probably any member of the Sanhedrin would be amazing. There are an awful lot of people you probably know some, or maybe you are one, who are believers in Christ but are paralyzed by the fear of what others might think about them because they believe in the Lord and they find themselves courting the approval of the world and in the process lose the effectiveness, uh, effectiveness of walking with God. I know for personally, um, tell them. Hello? I know uh, I, I work in a very um, 
very liberal place, and I, you know, I'm hearing all these conversations um, that go along, and you know, because I represent my company, I really kind of just have to watch what I say, you know, because I am the opposing view. <laughs> but there are moments when I get these people one on one, and you just say the word Jesus, and you say the Bible. And you can actually construct a logical sentence and a thought that they can actually relate to. You know what they become? They become just like everybody else. And they look inward, saying, hmm, yeah, I remember what my grandpa said. I remember what my dad said. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Presbyterian, right? You might gain in business, you might gain in social status, you might gain in reputation, you might gain in power, but you lose everything that matters. And at some point, you're going to have to be brought to a place where your faith in Jesus allows you to be fruitful for him and not fruitless because of fear. You know, everyone in the world seems to be coming out these days. Everyone wants to be out. I just want to tell you my point of view. You know, the gays, the transgenders, the Republicans... Yeah, I guess it didn't work. It was, it was funnier in my head. Except the Christians. As the Christians, we really need to come out and stand up because we level the playing field. We level the playing field. We are the alternative voice. You know, the, the, the mainstream of culture has gone very far left. And the hearts of men have waxed very cold. So when, you, <laughs> so when you present the gospel, it is touching that fallow ground that the Bible speaks of. And it's putting water where there hasn't been water in years. You say, hey, here I am. I'm walking with Christ and I'm going to trust him. Nicodemus in verse 39 also finds himself out at the cross. He had been a seeker from the very beginning. John 3 is early in the public ministry. He took note early on of who Jesus was, and he came at night, you know? He's always at night. Every time it mentions him, it's night, you know, Nick at night, that kind of thing. Yeah, Nick at night, Nick at night. John mentions it every time he does so. And remember back in John chapter 7, verses 45 to 52, one of the council meetings, when they had already determined that they should kill this Jesus, uh, better than one guy die, than everyone get a, out of a job and lose their place. That's essentially what their position was. Nicodemus spoke up and said, uh, Hey, um, do we try a guy before we actually hear him? And then they said to him, Oh, we suppose then you're a believer too. And that's all about he can get out. And they shut him down. And he didn't say anything else. But now he comes out too. So what do you think brought them out? What do you think motivated both Joseph and Nicodemus, these lovers of God, fearful of men? What do you think pushed them out? Do you think it was guilt? I should have followed. I should have spoken up. Now he's dead. It's too late. Do you think it was anger that this had been allowed to go so far? Do you think loyalty had anything to do with this? They wanted now to be faithful to a man that had been faithful for them. And in all reality, it doesn't really matter. 
What matters is that they got there and they got to faith. They came forward for Jesus now at the time appointed for them to come forward. They were now ready. Their hearts were ready. And once they came, they came in power. They said, uh, we weren't turning back anymore. You know, by stepping out like this, they were turning back their backs on their place of power. The synagogue days are over. The Sanhedrin powerful days are gone. They threw it all away to bury a dead man whom they were so convinced was the Lord that they threw everything away. Their reputation, their income, their power base, their social status. Whatever it might have been is now lost. They even defiled themselves so they couldn't eat the Passover. The very things these religious guys were so concerned about. But they were free now. They were free because Jesus came in. They were free to serve the Lord and they would start right now. The one thing that you find from scriptures is that Jesus never called anybody to follow him quietly or secretly. He called us to go forward and testify of who he is. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. And if you don't, I won't confess you before my father. <laughs> Matthew 10. The rich young ruler comes to mind. You know, Jesus tells him, you know, drop. Sell everything. Let everything else go and come. There's an old Phil Keggy song called Let Everything Else Go. It's just a beautiful song. It speaks to that. Our relationship with God demands openness and transparency and willingness to live our lives in a way that others see him. The cross, whatever else was going on, in there, and whatever else was going on changed these two guys. And his sacrifice on their behalf brought them without, uh, I think, without knowing each other to get to a place where they can no longer sit still. You know, I, I, you got to kind of wonder when they're doing their business, this getting together for the burial, if they didn't come around the corner of the tomb and say, Hey, what are you doing here? I don't know. What are you doing here? You know, but um, that would be pretty funny. <laughs> they were told that Joseph went boldly before Pilate. Uh, in Mark 15, towards the end, verse 44, it was a surprise to Pilate that Jesus was already dead and sent to Senate to Turin to verify the, uh, to ha before handing the body uh, over. But understand, for Joseph, this was a bold act. It took a lot of courage. There was, there was blood in the air. There was a mob mentality running wild. And he was crossing the most powerful people in the culture. And he stood against those who had the most influence at the time. But he did it. And you might love to be accepted and, and blessed and always well spoken of. But discipleship for Joseph and for all of us really can be can be dangerous. You won't always be acceptable to the world if you stand up. Sometimes you won't even be acceptable to your peers or your family. But you only have to please one person, and that's the Lord. 
Joseph had, Joseph had made the decision that he was going to do that. So wherever you turn in your Bible, God's not interested in secret discipleship. He wants open discipleship. You have to live for him openly. It was William Barclay who wrote, Love always involves responsibility, and love always involves a sacrifice. <sighs> involves sacrifice. And we do not really love Christ unless we are prepared to face his task and take up his cross. He also said, there isn't any such thing as secret discipleship. Either the secrecy will destroy the discipleship, or discipleship will destroy the secrecy. And for Joseph and for Nicodemus, you can only love the praises of men for so long while trying to seek the praises of God. These guys took a long time to come around. They had in their hearts faith, but it didn't accomplish much. It didn't bring them peace. They weren't very useful to the kingdom. But gradually, as time progressed, maybe a critical time, a turning in their life, we've all had that critical moment. The cross was certainly one of those that said to them, we can't do this anymore. We can't hide anymore. Either we're not going to be for him or we're going to be for him completely. And that caused them to move. And so they were willing to risk and lose status, position, and excommunication just to be open about their faith. And I think that's ultimately where God's, God wants to bring you and me. If you really believe him. You're going to have to tell others. You're going to have to share it. You can't keep it in. It's the greatest gift ever to mankind. It will please the Lord. It will be the place God would want you to be. And the place you'll find not only the greatest satisfaction, but the greatest fruitfulness. So in verse 39, we read for the first time in history... That Nicodemus is seen in daylight, sometime before six in the evening. And he brings him a hundred pounds of burial spice. Now, a hundred pounds is kind of overdoing it. Even if you look at historical precedents, how many pounds of spices were used, you don't get to a hundred. Uh, even in the burial of a king, this was overkill. But it was overkill out of love. I'm going to give all that I have. I'm going to give him more than all that I have. Joseph apparently would give him his personal burial plot. Neither of them were yet aware that he would only be barring the tomb for a few days, just for the weekend. He wasn't going to stay. And they brought myrrh and aloes and spices, a hundred pounds to, to bury him. Now, myrrh is a gummy resin that is made into powder, and when mixed with liquid, it smells a lot like sandalwood, if you know what that smells like. Um, think of uh, a rich, milky wood, earthy, damp, kind of like a fungus, but not in a bad way, not like, not like feet. <laughs> it's, it's rich and deep and powerful. But it was placed with the dead body in the creases of all the wrapping, so if you let it sit, they would kind of get rid of all the smell of the human decay. That's what it was for. But once it sat on the body for a few days, it was hardened, leaving almost like a mummy, which is probably what 
you know, John and Peter saw the wrappings hardened laying in the tube. Jesus stepping away from them or stepping out of them. But what, what, but there was still a form of a body there. And then him taking the things that they put over your head and folding it and putting it somewhere because they didn't put the myrrh around the head. It was just covered in the cloth. So most commentators believe that it makes perfect sense if you look at the way burials went, like the way the Jews did it. In, in three days, this myrrh would set up. It would be case-hardened. And you'd have to bust it or crack it to move it. So it was one of the three gifts, if you remember, the wise men brought. Gold for a king, frankincense for a piece, and myrrh was the embalming fluid. And they brought it to a baby's birth. It's kind of a weird shower gift, right? <laughs> but a prophecy nonetheless fulfilled. Joseph takes the body wraps it in linen and places it in a stone tomb with myrrh and spices, just like another Joseph did 30 or so years earlier. He had taken the same body, wrapped him in swaddling linen cloth, and placed him in a stone manger. And he watched as he presented with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In Leviticus 16, it's prescribed that on one day each year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to trade his beautiful robe for the simple linen robes worn by his fellow priests. And what the high priest, uh, what did they do on the Day of Atonement? He went through the holies of holies to sprinkle blood on the lid of the or mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, that two foot by three foot box that held the Ten Commandments. If he were defiled, he would stay in that place as a dead man. And he would later have to be pulled out with a rope. But if he were not defiled, he would walk out into the courtyard of the temple to the jubilant cries of the people who knew that they were forgiven for one more year. Here, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, is inside the tomb. Would he emerge? Did the sacrifice work? Are we free indeed? Only if he came out among the people, as he had prophesied, could there truly be celebration. And we could now know that what we know that we know that we know, that our sins are forgiven, and not just for one year, but for all eternity. So they gave everything they had. Joseph gave up a very expensive place to be buried in, on Olive Press Garden. Nicodemus brought 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe. It must have been very expensive. I mean, oils are expensive now. I can't imagine how much they were then. Well, the cross drove them out of the dark shadows. They took his body, we we're told. They transported it. They prepared it for burial. They placed it in a tomb. Mary Magdalene was there as well. It appears that John might as, may as well have been there as, as well. Here we see and learn from two guys that the cross changed them forever. They came with their life, and they were willing to give up all that they owned in this world to do this. They came with their time. They brought their best resources they had available. They took every bit of energy and risked life, limb, and position to go and serve. And the reason was they discovered God's love for them. And it, then it motivated them to move. It was love that ultimately drove these men 
to bury the Lord they care for, but hadn't been able to proclaim because of their great fear of men. If you'll discover the, the love that drives them to the cross, shame and fear will not be a part of te- your testimony because no one else has done this for you. No one else has gone this far. No one else has given this much for you and for me. And I could be sure that we, and, and because he did this, we can be sure we have life abundant and eternal. Do you love Christ? Are you prepared to take up the cross? I just love this picture of these two guys because their coming of faith is, to me is like a fulfillment of the scripture that says, we love him because he first loved us. They woke up. 1 John 4.19 Joe and Nick here love because they recognize the love of Christ before them. If we can get that, if we can understand that, he first loved me, then the other part's pretty easy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, just uh, grant us traveling mercies on the way home and just allow this word to penetrate our hearts so that we can apply it and bless others that you be glorified in our lives and the people that we come in contact with. We thank you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.